Good afternoon, everyone. Desultory, I would say. Uh, afternoon, everyone. All right. Always need to make sure you're awake. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'm delighted to see you here at a, uh, another installment in the Banner Lecture Series. And I want to congratulate you all for figuring out the parking situation outside. You all made it inside. Uh, did want to remind you for future reference, and you'll be seeing more about this as our construction project goes on, but parking obviously is at a premium. There's always parking available in the St. Mark's lot. St. Mark's lot is off of Colonial, about a half block that way. So if you ever can't find space out here, know that um, there's parking there. And of course, the VMFA deck is available. If you're a member, if not, I think it's $6, but uh, many of you are probably members. So I hope that you'll always have a place to, uh, to find a parking spot because even while construction is going on here, we are gonna have a very full calendar of programs like this and others. Um, I always need to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch for helping make uh, the Banner Lecture Series possible. Now, before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you of a few of these, a few of these upcoming events and programs. Our next Banner Lecture will take place here at noon on Thursday, March 27th. Uh, that day, Brent Tarter, who some of you may know, worked at the Library of Virginia for many years, will deliver a lecture entitled The Grandees of Government the origins and persistence of undemocratic politics in Virginia. It's spicy, and if you know Brent, it will be a spicy delivery. Uh, I also want to tell you the second installment of this year's See You in Class program begins tonight, and I'm sure some of you are already signed up for it. Uh, our good friend, Brigadier General John Jack Mountcastle, will lead the first of a two-part class entitled Hard War in the Old Dominion the Civil War in 1864. Jack's been giving one of these each year of the sesquicentennial, and I'm sure if you've seen earlier installments, you won't want to miss Jack's class. It will be tonight at 5.30 and again on the 13th of March. It's a two-part class, and Jack is a great teacher. I'm sure you'll want to, want to uh, check that out. On uh, Thursday, March 20th at 6.30 in the evening, the VHS will show the first in a four-part documentary film series called Created Equal, America's Civil Rights Struggle. Leading off will be a film called Slavery by Another Name, which tells the story of African Americans who were unfairly imprisoned, abused, and subjected to deadly working conditions as convict laborers in the South uh, between the 1870s and the 1840s. And a discussion of the film will follow. So that'll be the first of a four-part series. You'll hear more about the other parts as we go along. You can find more information about upcoming classes, lectures, bus trips, behind-the-scenes tours, and other special events on our website, vahistorical.org, or at the museum shop as you leave. Now, final little piece of housekeeping. If you have a cell phone, our speaker just turned her cell phone off. So if she can do this and not interrupt herself, I know you will want to do the same. Well, from before Jamestown to our own time, women have been central figures in the families and communities of the Old Dominion. In recent decades, historians have also shown that Virginia women, as civic leaders and reformers, genteel ladies, thank you, genteel ladies and embattled laborers were also significant historical actors. Today's speaker will help us commemorate Women's History Month, which is March, by exploring how the flourishing field of Virginia women's history transforms our overall understanding of Virginia history. Uh, Cindy Kerner is professor of history and director of the PhD program in history and art history at George Mason University. She received her PhD from the University of Virginia. A specialist in the fields of early America, women and gender, and early Southern history, Cindy has spoken here several times and is the author of, or editor of several books, including Scandal at Bazaar, Rumor and Reputation in Jefferson's America, and Martha Jefferson Randolph, Daughter of Monticello, Her Life and Times. And she's co-author of Changing History, Virginia Women Through Four Centuries, copies of which I am sure she will be happy to sign for you after the lecture. She is an OAH Distinguished Lecturer and past president of the Southern Association for Women Historians, 
and has served on several editorial boards, including a term with our own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Cindy Kerner, who will speak to us today on the topic, We Cannot Be Tame Spectators, Four, century, four Centuries of Virginia Women's History. Thank you for that great introduction. Um, 400 years of history in 45 minutes. You're lucky I talk fast. Um, I, I think that there are probably two reasons for my being here today, aside from the fact that I would never turn down an invitation from the Virginia Historical Society. Um, the first reason is the book, Changing History, Virginia Women Through Four Centuries. Um, I'm a co-author of this book. I'm one of three authors. My co-authors are um, Jennifer Liu and Megan Taylor Shockley. Um, the second reason why I'm here has to do with, um, as Paul suggested, Women's History Month. March is Women's History Month, and so we're here today to celebrate that occasion with a sort of Virginia twist to it. And so the two things, the book on the one hand, Women's History Month on the other, are in fact related. Um, Back in 1980, President Carter made Women's History Week official with the Presidential Proclamation. Within a decade, the event had been upgraded to Women's History Month. But in the United States, at least, the actual grassroots celebration of women's history grew out of the women's movement of the 1970s. What began as Women's History Week was originally commemorated in the 70s by the same sorts of people who were trying to rediscover and reclaim women's history as part of a larger effort to expand women's public roles and, and more generally to secure gender equality. So this founding generation of women's historians pioneered the field as an academic discipline, but also as something that should be commemorated as part of our collective historical memory as Americans. These are the people, in other words, who, among other things, brought us the Women's Rights National Historical Park on the site of the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York. Oh, I didn't turn it on. I'm glad we rehearsed this before. Um, oh, crap. Ah, yay, okay. <laughs> um, this, the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention, which obviously did not happen in Virginia, but bear with me, um, uh, is where Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote a document um, and, and people signed a document that was based on the Declaration of Independence called the Women's Declaration of Sentiments. Um, it occurred um, at Seneca Falls, New York in 1848, 1848. Um, and the historical site commemorating it didn't open until 1980. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, think about that, right? Okay. Um, in Virginia, arguably the most significant manifestation of this late 20th century phenomenon of rediscovering and commemorating women's history was something known as the Virginia Women's Cultural History Project. Some of you might remember this. Um, the Virginia Women's Cultural History Project resulted in a major exhibition on women's experiences next door at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in 1984. That exhibit was called A Share of Honor, colon, Virginia Women, 1600 to 1945. There was a museum catalog and a book with the same title written by the prominent historian Suzanne Lebzok. The book was published by the Virginia State Library, which is now, of course, the Library of Virginia. And the exhibit and the book worked in tandem to make Virginians more aware of women's roles in the long and fabled history of the Commonwealth, at least up to 1945. So it is this book, Lebzok's book, that came out of this exhibit on which ours builds and which it supplants both by virtue of our own original research and especially because the three of us, the three co-authors, were able to draw on three decades of really stellar historical work on Virginia women that has appeared since the 1980s. Now, the Library of Virginia 
also published our volume. And in some ways, we really do consider the book a sort of public history project. History, in other words, um, written for the public. So some quick comparisons between the original book and ours. Um, page count, share of honor, 174 pages, including index. Changing history, 548 pages, including index. You're laughing because I weighed them. I really did. Um, and, and this is, I mean, it, it, it's a little book. It's a very good little book, but it's a little book. Ours is a friggin' weapon. I mean, really, I mean, seriously, you go, you go out to the bookstore and you pick this thing up. I mean, not only is it 548 pages, but they use good heavy paper with a lot of illustrations. It is a doorstop. A lot of history for your money. Um, in terms of bibliography, um, Lebzok's bibliography was six and a half pages, which might sound like a lot, but if you look at the entries, you see that, I mean, she was really grasping at straws, including everything even vaguely related to Virginia women. So there might be a book about the history of Virginia. Well, you know, women are in the index, so we'll put it in the bibliography. Um, in the 1980s, Lebzak could only find two books and two articles that had anything at all to do with Native American women in Virginia. She had only 24 published sources for the entire 20th century. By contrast, we offer 11 pages of suggested reading, and that's exactly what it is. It's not a complete bibliography. They're just lists of books that we think our readers might like to read after they finish reading ours. Um, we also cite many other sources and 56 pages of endnotes. Um, so the point isn't that now we know everything. Um, there's still lots of work to do. Um, but it's rather that we know a whole lot more in 2014 um, than we did 30 years ago in 1984. So our book, in other words, is made possible by the cumulative efforts of a generation of historians which have enabled us to tell a much fuller story than Lebzok was able to tell in the 1980s. Um, our story spans 400 plus years from before Jamestown to the present. Um, it is inclusive, or at least it tries to be inclusive, in terms of race, class, region within Virginia, and also chronological period. I mean, as an early Americanist, I wanted my years to get the same amount of space in the book as, as the 20th century. So, so, I mean, we really did, um, you know, we, there's a firm commitment to being as inclusive um, and as balanced as possible. Okay, so I guess that begs the question, right? Um, why is the story, or better yet, the stories of Virginia women so important? I'm gonna give you the short answer and then I'm gonna give you a much longer one. Um, the short answer is that knowing something about women's history teaches us about women, but it also gives us a new way to think about history. So let me say that again. Knowing something about women's history teaches us about women, but it also gives us a new way to think about history. Okay, well, way back in 1975, Gerda Lerner, who was one of the founding mothers of American women's history, suggested that there were really three ways to approach the subject of women's history, each of which was significant in its own right. The first approach was something that Lerner called contribution history, contribution history. In other words, thinking and writing about how women contributed to history as we know it. Now, there will be literary references. Um, I like to call contribution history, here it comes, where's Waldo history? Come on, get with the literary references, people. I mean, this is intellectually demanding. Um, I like to call contribution history, where's Waldo history? Um, because like Waldo in the famous children's book, you know, you gotta look for him and he's everywhere, right? Well, you can find women pretty much everywhere in history if you only look hard enough. Just like 
you know, finding Waldo in those really, you know, busy pictures. If you look hard enough, you're going to find Waldo and Wenda and the wizard and everyone else. Um, we can find women at Jamestown in 1607. We can find women in Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. We can find them a century later at Valley Forge and then a few years later still at the Battle of Yorktown, which more or less ends the Revolutionary War. Women worked in the fields and in the factories that fueled Virginia's and America's Industrial Revolution. Virginia women were later activists in the Civil Rights Movement, and some were active opponents of that movement as well. Including women's contributions to these historical moments, and most others, because remember, they're everywhere, you only got to look hard enough, including women gives us a more accurate and I think a more ethical view of the past that we think we already know. At the same time, though, simply, change, simply inserting women into the familiar story of Virginia history doesn't really change the story, right? It only expands the cast of characters. But I think that even that is important. And I think that even that is important mostly because of all those incredibly resilient stereotypes about Southern ladies, right? You know, Virginia women are frail, they're weak, they wear the big dresses, they, you know, do this and that. Um, all of those stereotypes, well, first of all, lead us to think about Virginia women in a very narrow and specific way. Um, but I also think that all those stereotypes lead us to think that we will not find Virginia women doing things like working in factories, demanding the right to vote, or establishing various sorts of organizations and movements, all of which they, in fact, did do historically. One of my favorite examples of finding a Virginia woman where you don't expect to find her comes from the pages of the state's most important newspaper, the Richmond Inquirer, in 1829. Okay, so 1829, the delegates to Virginia's state constitutional convention, they're here in Richmond and they're debating a lot of things. One of the things that they're debating is whether or not they should extend the vote to all adult white men, something, by the way, that they decide against, but they're debating it. Um, and in the midst of these debates going on in the Constitutional Convention, there appears this essay um, in the Richmond Inquirer. Um, and what the essay is, you can see that it bears the title, The Rights of Women. Um, it appeared in the Inquirer under the pseudonym or under the pen name Virginia Free Woman, which you can't see because that was sort of like at the bottom um, of the article. Um, Virginia Free Woman, all in uppercase letters. That's, that was how this essay was signed. Um, and in this essay, Virginia Free Woman argued in favor of votes for women. And here's some of what she had to say. Are we not as much affected by the laws which are passed as the lords of creation themselves? What just reasons can be given for this unjust exclusion? So think about this. Wrap your mind around this. Here is a Virginia woman publicly appealing, publicly demanding the right to vote nearly two decades before that famous convention happened in Seneca Falls, New York finding a Virginia woman where you don't expect to find her. So this first approach then is contribution history. Um, the second approach that Lerner wrote about is more about using what we learn about women's history to test or to challenge the existing historical narrative, or in other words, the story of history as we know it. What, is, let me, what exactly does that mean? Well, well, it means asking how does history look different from a woman's perspective or from the perspective of female actors. The most basic example of this approach is using what our research tells us about women's experiences to test the commonly accepted narrative arc of American history as a story of continual progress, right? I mean, this is the way we think of American history, progress, things getting better over time. And progress in that narrative arc is usually measured in terms of increases in both material wealth or prosperity um, and also freedom or rights, right? So that's kind of the big American story, the way most people tend to think about it. Well, 
Our book does not accept that history is progress thesis entirely, um, but we don't entirely reject it either. Um, on the one hand, we do offer this kind of fine-grained history of a very diverse group of people, i.e. Virginia women, whose status has improved over time, at least at the macro level, right? Enslaved women become free. Wives become property owners. Women of all classes and races attain greater access to education, suffrage, and other basic civil rights. Um, so that's the good news. On the other hand, we also show, again, we've got 548 pages to do this, we also show that women's gains have not always been steady over time and that they have obviously varied an awful lot by class and by race and also by region. You know, women's experiences in Richmond are rather different than they are um, in the mountains of Western Virginia. But there are some significant exceptions even to this relatively happy interpretation of sort of what I would, I guess, call conditional progress. And I think the most notable of those exceptions can be found if we turn to the history um, of Native American women, or in other words, Indians. Um, when the English arrived in Jamestown um, in 1607, they found that women enjoyed a degree of status and influence in Native American societies that they simply did not have in Europe. Native American women were farmers and their control of land and food made them powerful. Um, most Native American peoples were matrifocal and matrilineal, which means basically that a married couple lived on land belonging to the woman's family and that families passed property and power, chiefdoms, right, um, down through their female lines, which is exactly the opposite of the way things worked in England. Some women even became chiefs in their own right. And obviously, you know, we don't really know what these people look like, but we know what their signatures look like, right? And so here you see a signature from Kakakoski, the Pamunkey chief. It says queen of the Pamunkey on behalf of herself and several Indians. Um, she um, was a chief who took part in the negotiations leading to the Treaty of Middle Plantation, which clarified the status of Native Americans in Virginia after Bacon's Rebellion, so like 17, 1677 or, or thereabouts. Um, probably the last important women, woman um, to be a chief um, in Virginia um, was a Nottaway woman named Juana Runsora, who was also known as Edie Turner. Um, in the early 19th century, and, and that's her signature um, down here on this treaty. Um, by the time Edie Turner was around in the early 19th century, the Nottaway people were very few in number. Um, they were already confined to a reservation in Southampton County. And as chief, Turner accepted white agricultural methods and became a prosperous farmer and landowner in her own right. Um, but at the same time that she was sort of conforming to White's ways of doing things economically speaking, she was working hard to preserve the Nottaway people culturally. Um, she tried to preserve the Nottaway as a distinctive people by teaching the next generation the tribal language and traditions and so forth. It's hard to know exactly how successful she was because the sale of tribal lands led to the Nottaway's dispersal and disappearance. They mostly assimilated into Southampton County's free African-American community. Now in most histories, think about most histories that you've read, Native Americans tend to disappear from the story sometime during the 19th century, particularly on the East Coast, right? It's like, oh, well, you know, they come, they conquer them, they hang around for a little while, and then, you know, they're gone. Um, and, and, and if you're reading, you know, a survey of, of American history, particularly one that's focused on the East Coast, um, you'd be hard-pressed to find any information um, about Native peoples after, say, um, the Cherokee Trail of Tears um, in the 1830s. As co-authors, we worked really hard to try to maintain an American presence throughout the four centuries of Virginia's history because they were still here, right? You know, it's like they didn't disappear even if they disappeared from the historical narrative. Um, it was really hard to do that, to find the information that we needed to maintain that continual threat, but in the end, our efforts paid off. And here's why. Um, Virginia Indians were part of 
the American Indian movement um, that, that arose in the 1970s out of the civil rights movement for African American rights. Um, and women often spearheaded efforts to get tribal recognition for the Indian peoples um, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And when those efforts succeeded, women became very influential in the newly reconstituted tribal governments. And one really exceptional example of this, that's the um, American Indian Movement logo, um, is the Rappahannock tribe. Um, G. Ann Nelson Richardson was elected chief of the Rappahannock Indians in 1998. And Chief Ann's research on the historical background of modern Virginian Indian tribes helped her people to get state recognition um, in 1983, which is important not only for you know, economic reasons. You know, if you were in Connecticut, you could have a casino. Um, but it's also important for cultural reasons as well. Um, and so, I, I mean, I really like this example of Chief Ann because it's a great example that shows how knowledge of the past can be a source of power, right? I mean, she goes out and she conducts history, research on the history um, of, of the, the Rappahannock people and uses what she finds um, to mount a compelling case to the state government um, that, that they deserve to be recognized as a sovereign people. So that's the second approach, using what we know about women's experiences to question or to interrogate um, or to reevaluate the existing historical narrative, the big story of American history. The third approach that Lerner wrote about was using gender, and by gender I mean the attributes, opportunities, constraints, that any given society imposes on women and men because of their sex, using gender as a category of analysis. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, what it means, a category of analysis is basically a variable, right? It's something that makes a difference. When historians use gender as a category of analysis, we are basically trying to avoid overly simple generalizations about Americans or about Virginians and focusing instead on how gender, the simple fact of being female or male, shaped the lived experiences of people in the past. So for us then, the question was, how did being female make the historical experiences of one half of all Virginians distinctive from the experiences of the other more frequently studied half of the population? Um, and I think there are lots of ways to answer this question, but I think two examples would help. If you were a man, especially a white man, looking for opportunity in early 19th century Virginia, migration either to the west or to the cotton south, would be an attractive option. Most Virginia men had been trained to be farmers, um, but the state's land market was really bad and the tobacco economy was, was, was volatile and, and, and often just pretty bad too. So many Virginia men and their families left in search of cheap land and in search of economic opportunity elsewhere. The idea of building something new in a rough new environment, and the idea of doing this as a way of taking care of one's family, fit well with contemporary notions of manhood. You know the expression, go west, young man, go west? I mean, they say specifically, young man. And I, and I mean, I think there's a reason for that. That saying promised both prosperity and the attainment of, of manliness, right, on the wild and wonderful frontier. But what if you were a woman, especially a woman who was on her own? Gender would have shaped your education, which probably would not have included the sorts of skills needed to clear land and establish a farm or a family in some faraway rural place without support of family, friends, what have you. And even if you had those skills and the physical strength, there would have been significant cultural and economic, and in some cases, even legal obstacles 
As a young female, you might have learned how to read and write. You probably picked up some religion along the way. Um, but you certainly knew how to sew. Everyone knew how to sew. Um, and perhaps do other domestic sorts of things. So if you were a 19th century woman who hoped to get ahead, or even just to survive, you would be much better off going to a city where you could work as a teacher, a seamstress, a domestic servant. Um, if you had some capital, some money, you could open a boarding house and take in boarders. Um, in cities, women also had support networks made up of other women, which sometimes even resulted in the creation of formerly organized women's associations. Richmond and other Virginia cities had many women's associations in the decades before the Civil War, and, and of course many, many more of them after the Civil War as well. Um, many of these groups were formed specifically to help girls and young women, particularly widows and, and female orphans. Um, the first type of group that women tended to organize in cities were known as benevolence associations. Um, benevolence is kind of another word for charity in this context. Um, these groups were relatively wealthy women um, helping widows and orphans, and they were, these sorts of groups were established in Richmond, Norfolk, Petersburg, Fredericksburg, and Alexandria um, in the first decade or so of the 19th century. Um, some smaller cities as well, or smaller towns as well, had these sorts of organizations. Um, the broadside that you see here, um, which is from the collection of the Virginia Historical Society. No, it isn't. It's from the Library of Virginia. Sorry. Oh. Um, any, anyway, you guys probably have one here too. I'm sure you do. Um, <laughs> Um, this is actually from Portsmouth, and, and what this is, is it's a broadside for the Female Charitable Society of Portsmouth. Um, it in basically includes, you know, all of their sort of rules and regulations. Um, you know, how much dues you're going to pay, what we're going to do with the money, and, and, and so forth and so on. Um, some of these organizations were like a really big deal. The one in Richmond actually founds an orphanage. And these are women coming together to do this to help other women. Um, so that's benevolence. Um, women in cities also organize church groups or mite societies, M-I-T-E. A mite is like a little bit. Um, and these groups supposedly, you know, collected um, mites or little bits of money um, to help um, poor people in their congregations and to also, you know, help do the work of the church in other contexts. I mean, some historians of women have done, you know, research into these mite societies and have found out that that some of these groups actually raise pretty significant amounts of money, but that's what they called them nonetheless. Um, other types of women's organizations would have included mutual aid societies, like the one founded in Petersburg in the 1850s. These groups are really interesting um, because these are basically poor or working class women getting together, paying dues to be loaned to this organization, um, their dues go into a common pool that members could draw on um, if they were somehow, you know, sick or incapacitated and couldn't work and they needed money. Um, the money could also be drawn on for, for funerals because funerals were something that, that poor families sometimes had difficult, difficulty affording. So there are all these kinds of support networks and organizations that women are able to, you know, create in cities that, that you know, I mean, if you're living in the middle of Kansas or Nebraska in 1850, um, it, it's going to be a little bit harder to, to do. So though the standard narrative of American history uses the West as this kind of avenue to social mobility and prosperity and independence and all of these great things, when the focus shifts to women, the growth of cities and the economic and social opportunities they offered um, seems a lot more important, actually, than the West or than this migration to free and open lands. Um, and though most histories of antebellum Virginia tend to focus on plantation life, after all, most people did live on farms or plantations, um, our research also shows that the draw of cities was important even for plantation people who came to Richmond especially to do business and to socialize during the social season. Um, you know, the, the, the balls in Richmond that coincided with the meeting of the state legislature, 
These were the most important kind of marriage markets um, for wealthy young people, um, you know, in wealthy rural people in particular, um, in Virginia in the 19th century. So cities are really important, despite the fact that only a small minority of people in Virginia actually live in them during this period. Historians have also shown that gender was a crucial variable in terms of how people experienced the institution of slavery. Enslaved men were more likely than women to have skilled jobs in either plantation or urban settings, while enslaved women were far more likely than men to live with their young children. And these two factors together account for the fact that the overwhelming majority of runaway slaves were men, despite the fact that enslaved women often experienced a special kind of hell in the form of sexual abuse or assault, in other words, rape, um, which surely must have tempted many of them to flee. But, you know, they had the kids. They had to stay with the kids. Um, the case of Lizzie Hobbs, who was a Dinwiddie County woman who later became famous as Elizabeth Keckley, Mary Todd Lincoln's dressmaker and confidant, um, I think is instructive. Um, by 1838, um, she was 20 years old, and a white man named Alexander Kirkland was raping her on a regular basis, and she eventually became pregnant. But rather than run away, um, she stayed with her child, first in Virginia, and then later with a new master and mistress in St. Louis, where she eventually earned her freedom. We know Keckley's story because once she became free, she did all sorts of cool stuff, and, and she eventually wrote an autobiography. And what you see here is the title page from her autobiography, um, Behind the Scenes, 30 Years a Slave, um, and, and Six Years in the White House. Um, and this is... This is, um, you know, obviously a print of, of her. Um, and in her autobiography, um, I mean, she wrote about all sorts of things. But one of the things that she wrote about was how, I mean, she didn't put it in these words, but basically how gender shaped her experience as an enslaved woman. Um, she wrote tersely that Kirkland had persecuted her for four years because he was protected by, and this is a quote, the edicts of a society which deemed it no crime to undermine the virtue of girls in my then position, unquote. In other words, slavery. Significantly, once she got her freedom, Keckley moved to a city, in her case, Washington, D.C., and earned her living by sewing. And, and obviously, she was a more talented seamstress um, than most people because she, she actually became fairly well-to-do and famous um, as a result of it. Now, to be sure, men experienced physical and emotional pain in slavery. I'm not trying to argue otherwise. What I'm trying to say is that gender ensured that the sort of pain they suffered would be different. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Frederick Douglass's um, narrative and his story. Um, he's from Maryland, but I'm going to talk a little bit about him anyway because, um, you know, because so many of, of the stories that, that he tells in his narrative really are kind of iconic. Um, and one of the stories that he told, um, Douglas recalled how he felt so angry and so helpless when he had to stand by and watch his master brutally beat his aunt, who was, you know, an old woman. Um, he felt emotional pain because as a man, he was supposed to protect her, but yet he wasn't able to do that. Um, and in fact, I mean, you almost get the sense that, you know, when he writes about he himself being brutally beaten, that, that the pain, the physical pain of, 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 of that beating um, is actually kind of less than this emotional pain of, of not being able to protect um, his aunt and, and other women that he writes about in his narrative. Um, so too would women and men typically use different strategies to resist the terms of their enslavement. Um, men ran away. And some men, like the Virginian Nat Turner, would even lead insurrections. But family responsibilities discouraged enslaved women from leaving and gave them few opportunities to plot um, insurrections or anything like that. Uh, also gave them many reasons to avoid violent confrontations with white people. Very few women were implicated in Virginia slave uprisings, or, or slave uprisings anywhere else for that matter. But many did attack their tormentors 
using more covert methods. Like women were, um, I, I mean, the way that, that the, the kind of best known ways that women resist, resisted slavery or, or their master's authority was by like setting fires, you know, arson. Okay, I'm going to burn down the house. Pff, you'll never find out who did it. Or by poisoning them, right? You know? So, I mean, these are, these are still ways of resisting, but they're ways of resisting that it's not quite as obvious who's doing it. And as a result of that, um, not only you yourself, but your children are in less danger. Because think about it. Um, I mean, if you are, are overtly defying your master, um, the master knows that, that, that probably the best way to get back at you um, is to abuse your children, or worse yet, to sell your children, right? So people who study slavery, when they talk about how men resist slavery and how women resist it, it's really very different. And, and most of the sort of forms of resistance that women did um, tended to be, they tended to be less in your face, but nonetheless, potentially lethal. I mean, dead is dead, right? I mean, whether you get killed in a slave insurrection or by poison or whether, whether your house burns down. Um, the point is, gender makes a difference. Um, it does. Um, and I could give you more examples, but, but it's dark and I have 45 minutes, so we, we must go on. Um, I'm going to actually spend the rest of my time um, focusing on one fairly well-known event that I actually happen to know a lot about, which is the American Revolution. Um, I wrote the first three chapters of the book up to the Civil War. I also wrote the epilogue. And I'll tell you, when I wrote the epilogue, I felt like I was an undergraduate because I'm like doing all the research online because it's like the present. I need something on Asians in Fairfax. Let's Google Asians in Fairfax. I mean, it was, which is a very different way of doing, um, of doing you know, history than, than, than I'm used to. Um, Megan Taylor Shockley wrote the last three chapters. Neither of us wanted to touch the Civil War. Apologies to any aficionados out there. And, and Jen Liu wrote the chapter on the Civil War. My war is the revolution. Um, and I'd like to highlight um, some of Virginia women's contributions to the revolution and then some, to suggest some ways in which this obviously significant event looks different when we view it from the perspective of the female half of the population. Okay, so whether we're talking about pre-revolutionary protest or about the war and its aftermath, women, Virginia women, were pretty much everywhere men were though their presence often wasn't formally recognized. Let's start with the quotation that is the title of my talk, which for those of you who are paying attention are probably like, well, what is she going to tell us what that means? Well, the quotation was, surely, my sisters, we cannot be tame spectators when so much remains for us to do and may reasonably be expected of us. That's a quote from 1774. It's not a quote from like 1940, right? Um, this quotation comes from an essay that was published under the pseudonym A Planter's Wife, and it appeared on the front page of Clementina Rhine's Virginia Gazette in 1774. Um, that's the front page of the paper, um, which obviously continues farther down. Um, September 1774, in other words, nine years after the colonists began protesting the Stamp Act, which was the kind of first thing that got them angry at the British, um, and, and, and just less than two years um, before the Declaration of Independence. The fact that a female was expressing political opinions on the front page of an important newspaper, and the fact that the planter's wife was one of two female authors featured on the front page that day, shows that women were politicized by the pre-revolutionary imperial crisis in which they played a significant role. Um, it also shows that women were speaking publicly um, about political issues and that people were kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, you can do this. You know, you know that's okay with us. Um, this, by the way, is a first um, in Virginia and, and in most places for that matter. When Virginians organized consumer boycotts to protest British imperial policies, women were there. Consumer boycotts, that means like shopping. Eh, women shop, right, you know? Um, cloth and tea were the two, mo two of the most significant exports from Great Britain to the colonies, and both cloth and tea were closely associated with women as consumers. Perhaps the most public demonstration of Virginia women's support for the consumer boycotts came in 1769 when the ladies of Williamsburg and the wives of the members of the House of Burgesses wore dresses made of homespun instead of fashionable gowns made of silk, 
when they went to a ball at the governor's palace. This is a way of showing we're not, we don't need your stinking silk. We're not, we're not buying that stuff anymore. Um, we're going to make our own, and it looks like hell, but you know what? <laughs> God, you wish they had, you know, you wish they were taking selfies. That would have been great. Um, okay, this situation should strike us as at least a little ironic or even hypocritical, given that enslaved women would have done all the work, all the spinning and the weaving that was required to make homespun cloth in patriotic slaveholding households, but still. Other women spoke out more pointedly to challenge the status quo in terms of women's rights. At least two Virginia women invoked the logic and the rhetoric used by the colonists during the imperial crisis to complain about what they considered to be unfair taxes. Now remember, the main slogan of the colonists leading up to the revolution was no taxation without representation. In other words, I don't want to pay no taxes that you know, my representatives haven't voted for. So Hannah Lee, of, Hannah Lee Corbin of Westmoreland County, who was the widowed sister of Richard Henry Lee, a prominent member of the Continental Congress, complained to her brother. What the heck? Um, she complained to him that because widows are not represented in the legislature, they should not be liable to the taxes it imposed on property-owning Virginians. How's that working for you, Hannah? Um, when Mary Willing Bird of Westover um, wrote to the governor of Virginia, two governors of Virginia, actually first Thomas Jefferson and then his successor, Thomas Nelson, um, about her taxes, she was even more outspoken. Bird described herself as a widow, a property holder, a taxpayer, and the stepmother of a continental soldier who had, quote, lost his life in the service of his country. As she angrily explained to a Thomas Jefferson, who was not amused, um, I have paid my taxes and I have not been personally or virtually represented because of her sex. Lacking the right to vote or other means by which to influence government policies, she declared, quote, my property is taken from me and I have no redress, unquote. Didn't work out very well for her either. Um, neither of these women got any satisfaction. Um, one likes to think that Richard Henry Lee at least had a nice conversation with his, history, with his sister at some point off paper. Thomas Jefferson, I'm thinking, was probably just pissed as hell and just file this, you know. Um, uh, neither of these women got any satisfaction, but what's important here is that they did articulate the sorts of ideas and protests that would become recurring themes in women's centuries-long struggle to gain political and legal rights. The revolutionary era also marks the first time that African-American women entered Virginia's public record as something other than property or parties to court cases, usually defendants. The war and the revolutionary rhetoric about liberty and rights and all of that stuff destabilized slavery in Virginia. Even a lot of serious thinking white people are kind of like, eh, you know, really, should we be doing this? Ultimately, they said, well, yeah, but, but for a while, at least, they, they sort of questioned it. Um, and, and some, in fact, did free their slaves. Um, enslaved women and men escaped to join the British forces in hopes of gaining freedom, and many thousands, in fact, did. But those who remained in Virginia also tried to become free, and one of the ways they did so was by petitioning the state legislature whenever it seemed like there was legal grounds to question their status as slaves. So they are sort of confronting the political elite of Virginia and saying, eh, I don't really think I should be a slave. What are you going to do about this? Um, so in June 1777, a Northumberland County woman named Rachel became the first African-American woman to petition state lawmakers. Um, and here you see that's page one of the petition, and, and this is page two. Um, this is in the legislative petitions collections at the Library of Virginia. And boy, you know, if you want to hear the voices of non-upper-class women in this period, this is probably the best place to try to do that. Petitioning on behalf of herself and her infant daughter, also named Rachel or Rachel Jr., she asked the legislators to prevent a white man named Zachariah Barr from keeping them enslaved. Despite the fact that Barr's deceased brother emancipated both mother and daughter and his will and gave them 25 acres and a house. The legislature, interestingly, upheld the validity of Barr's will and verified that Rachel and Rachel Jr. were indeed free people. 
Virginia women were also in the army camps and on the battlefields with armies on both sides. They worked as nurses, cooks, and laundresses. Um, and at a time when disease killed many more people and starvation killed many more people than actual battlefield injuries, these were really essentially important jobs, being a nurse, a cook, or a laundress, essential to the troops' survival. Some women also disguised themselves as men so that they could join the army, earn soldiers' wages, and fight in battle. It's kind of hard to know how many did this because, of course, they tried as hard as possible to prevent people from knowing that they were doing it because once they realized that you were a woman, you got kicked out of the army. Um, so we don't really know how many women from Virginia or from anywhere else actually did this sort of thing. Um, Anna Maria Lane was in fact um, Virginia's only acknowledged female military veteran of the revolution. Lane was dressed in a Continental Army uniform when she was severely wounded at the Battle of Germantown in 1777. After the war, she and her husband lived in Richmond and in 1808, the state legislature publicly recognized her military service and gave her a generous pension. So, like Waldo, women were everywhere doing all sorts of things that patriots, or in some cases loyalists, did during the revolutionary era. Their contributions are unquestionable. But how does knowing the history of women change our understanding of the revolutionary era in Virginia and beyond? In other words, how do we do those second and third things, you know, challenging the narrative, looking at it differently from women's perspective, using gender as a category of analysis. Now, as you probably know, most historians, I think with some justification, say that the revolution was all about the preservation of liberty and the expression of rights. In other words, if the revolution has one big story, that would be it. But Virginia women, and American women generally actually, got no new rights as a result of the revolution. They got no more liberties. The English common law of marriage remained in force. Um, probably the most important part of the common law that pertained to marriage was the doctrine of coverture, which made wives non-persons in the eyes of the law. Um, and, and that, in turn, um, among other things, prevented them from controlling property, even if that property was like wages that they earned themselves. Um, worse still, Thomas Jefferson's extensive, extensive revision of Virginia's legal code actually probably decreased women's access to property in the post-revolutionary era. That wasn't Jefferson's main purpose, but, but it probably still happened nonetheless. I mean, Jefferson had this idea that, you know, we need American laws. We need to get rid of some of these English laws. And, and one of his most significant reforms was to abolish entail and primogeniture, which were the, the rules of inheritance whereby the oldest son got almost everything, or certainly the lion's share, and, and everybody else kind of got less. Jefferson's idea was that in a republic, in a democracy, um, inheritance should be more equal among male siblings, which in turn tended to diminish the property that their sisters inherited. I mean, he kind of didn't think of that, or maybe he did, I don't know. Um, likewise, because the revolution was a popular movement, by which I mean it drew on support from people across the social spectrum, from the very wealthy to the very poor, celebrations of citizenship became more democratically inclusive during the post-revolutionary era. Okay, and what I mean specifically is, in the colonial period, the main holiday was the king's birthday. The main way you celebrated the king's birthday was by all the rich people getting way dressed up and going to a ball at the governor's palace. Since men didn't want to dance by themselves, their wives and daughters went with them. Okay? So it was for wealthy people. Um, after the revolution, the main holiday is, of course, the 4th of July. And these fancy balls give way to a more democratic sort of celebration um, and the sort of celebration that becomes, you know, pretty much universally used um, in Virginia and in the other states is the militia parade, the parade of soldiers. Militia parades celebrated men, pretty much all men or all white men, as those who won and who now enjoyed independence and liberty. Whatever women did to support the revolution at home, on the battlefields, anywhere, was deftly erased from the public consciousness. 
Um, it's worth noting that when I said Anna Maria Lane, some of you might have thought, ah, the marker on, Monu on Capitol Square. There is, there's a marker commemorating her on Capitol Square. She got her pension in 1808. The monument was erected in 1995. Forgetting women's involvement in the pre-revolutionary boycotts and in the war itself made it relatively easy um, for people to assume that the American triumph would not fundamentally affect their public status or political rights after the war was over. Um, and in fact, I mean, I really love reading Fourth of July toast, which tended to be published in newspapers. And it's actually cool because they did one toast for each state in the Union. So, you know, by the time you get to the 1840s, people are getting pretty drunk because there are a lot of states. Um, and they would usually save the last toast. I mean, they'd have all these detailed toasts to, you know, so-and-so, this great man who did this, to so-and-so. And then the last toast, when they were really wasted, would be, to the American fair, which meant women, F-A-I-R, just kind of generically, to women. We don't know why, but to women, right? You know, and, and, and so that was kind of the last toast. Um, the point is not whether the revolution was good or bad from the perspective of Virginia women, but rather to ask what it meant. Whatever its impact on women's political consciousness, with the very, with the very significant exception of the African-American women who became free via either escape or manumission, the revolution brought Virginia women no new legal or civil rights. Once we know that, we need to ask if a story that omits the experiences of one half of the population is still a story worth telling, or whether historians and the public need to revise that story and the story of Virginia's history more generally to reflect a more diverse and complicated historical reality. Thank you. So I'm told I get to answer questions, which is awesome. Okay. Uh, some things uh, seem not to change. <clears throat> the General Assembly has once again declined to approve the Equal Rights Amendment. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps you could comment on that. Oh, you know. I'm going to go on record um, to tell the good people who organized the Banner Lecture Series um, that you really need to have my co-author, Megan Shockley, here to talk. Um, she will rock. She's phenomenal. And, and she is actually somebody who is writing a book on second wave feminism in Virginia. And of course, I mean, the first time that they didn't approve it, there was some kind of you know, trick that they got someone to stay away, so they fell one vote short. And, 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 and I mean, I don't know, would I care to comment on it? Um, I mean, I think at this point, um, it, it's probably more symbolic than anything else. Um, because if the Virginia legislature approves it, I mean, it doesn't, you know, automatically take effect or anything like that. Um, but by the same token, symbols matter, right? And, um, you know, I, I, what? Did somebody say something? Um, I mean, I, mean I, think, I think that symbolically it matters. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it seems to be self-evident that, well, of course, the Equal Rights Amendment should be ratified. Um, but, you know, then you have people who want to talk about the bathrooms, right? And it's like, oh, but does that mean men can use the women's bathroom? It's like, <laughs> what man would want to use the women's bathroom? I, I mean, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, I, I, you know, it, it's, it's, a really interest, it's a really interesting question, and my comment would be that, that, you know, I mean, it seems self-evident that it should be ratified, but it also, you know, I mean, obviously there are reasons that it hasn't been. Uh, quick question. I noticed the Virginia Gazette printed by Clementina Rind. Yeah. Can you, is that a it female? It sounds like a woman. It'd be a bad name for a guy, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> he would have issues. Um, okay. Uh, yes, she was a woman. Um, she was the widow of, of William Rind, um, who was... If any of you know anything about early Virginia history, um, and I'm sure a lot of you do, um, I mean, the first... Newspaper in Virginia is in Williamsburg in the 
1730s. It's called the Virginia Gazette. Um, during the 1760s, when you know people, you know, like Jefferson and his ilk, um, begin to sort of, you know, protest imperial policies, there are people in Williamsburg and and in Virginia generally who think that this Virginia Gazette. I mean, it's not pro-king in Parliament, but it's just maybe not kind of radical enough. So they need to have a second paper that's going to be a little more out there, politically speaking. So they get this guy, William Rhine, to set up this paper, and he decides to name his paper. I don't think he was the most creative man, but he called it the Virginia Gazette. So now they have two papers in Williamsburg. They're both called the Virginia Gazette, one of which is known as Rhine's Virginia Gazette. The other one is known as Purdy and Dixon's, although the ownership changes. William Rhine died and his wife takes over the business. And that is actually surprisingly common in early America. Um, in Maryland, in South Carolina, in a lot of other colonies, you have this sort of scenario, women running newspapers because they inherit it from their husbands. And, and one of the reasons why that happens is that printer families tend to work as groups. It really is a family business, even if they bring in outsiders to sort of you know kind of help them with it. Um, so that when William Ryan dies, Clementina is well positioned to sort of know um, not just you know, how the business operates, um, but also know the people that her husband dealt with, including the House of Burgesses, right? So I mean, after the husband dies, um, the Rhines had the job as being the public printer, which was lucrative, right? It meant that you got to, their press was the one that was publishing um, you know, all the laws and basically anything the government put out in print form. She actually has to go to the House of Burgesses and, and, and argue in favor of, of having that renewed, even though now she's running the paper. They give it to her. They, so, I mean, clearly, you know, she was credible enough. But, yeah, she is a woman. Um, she has this sort of solo career um, for about a year, and then she died, too. Um, but yeah, but that's actually, it's more common than you would think. But I mean, I think, you know, for, you know, Virginia history fans, I think Clementina Ryan is Virginia's first woman of letters. I mean, we talk about Ellen Glasgow, a fabulous novelist, right? Um, but I mean, Clementina Ryan is somebody who is, is, is publishing more than a year's worth of newspapers at a time when there are like only two newspapers in all of Virginia. Um, and as the editor slash publisher, she's also doing a lot of the writing. Um, and she's certainly, you know, choosing where to put things in the newspaper. And that one image that I showed you is remarkable. I mean, it's like kind of the first, you know, women's periodical um, in American history. The front page of her paper for one day is all about the ladies. And I don't know that anyone ever remarked on it, but I sure thought it was remarkable. It's like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Good question. Yeah. Thank you for helping us celebrate Women's History Month. Yay! You really got me curious when you said, obviously, the Civil War is not your niche. But why didn't you want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole? <laughs> that, well, I mean, I guess the easy answer is that I'm an early Americanist. And, I mean, to do any kind of a synthetic history, and this kind of is a synthetic history, right? I mean, we're pulling together not only our research, but everyone else's. You really need to know the secondary literature. Um, I know the secondary literature really well in my period. I don't know the Civil War literature as much. And, you know, and to be quite honest, um, I do get irked when I'm teaching courses on, I don't know, colonial America, and, you know, people are, people are like, you know, they're talking about, I don't know, Virginia in 1740. And they're like, well, that's going to lead to the Civil War. It's like, really? Really? You know, I mean, no, it's not. All these people are going to be dead. And, and it's not, you know, I mean, it's not the same. So, I mean, part of it, part of it is just that. And, and I mean, I think Megan's take was kind of the same. It's like, I, I'm a 20th century historian. I can go back to like, you know, the Gilded Age or whatever because there are some sort of natural connections. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the Civil War does kind of work as being its own thing, um, you know, and, and, um, and we're just really fortunate that we found someone good to write it because, you know, Megan and I were like, well, can we just like have a bunch of pictures for the Civil War chat? <laughs> It is the beginning of the age of photography, right? <laughs> if you look at the book, one of the things that I really like about it is th that there are tons of illustrations. 
Um, most of which, but not all, come from the Library of Virginia's collections. They really want to spotlight their collections. Um, and I mean, I have to say that the images for the second half of the book are just way better. I mean, you've got photography, you've got, you know, people, I mean, doing things. Um, but on the other hand, um, you know, take a look at the illustrations for the first half, because I think in a lot of ways you have to be a lot more creative. Um, if you're trying to use illustrations and, and you don't have photography and you don't have mass media and you don't have um, all of these sorts of things. I mean, I, I would say that 90% of the women that I wrote about, we don't know what they looked like. I mean, you saw a portrait of Mary Willing Bird because she had her portrait painted and she was obscenely wealthy until her husband went broke and committed suicide. But that's like, that's like another story. You know, so I mean, but, but I mean, one of the things that to me is really striking is that, that so many of the people that I write about, um, we don't know what they look like. I mean, the last, um, the last Virginia woman that I wrote about, I wrote an essay about Grace Sherwood, who's the Virginia witch. You ever hear of her? I mean, she's like the, the woman who goes on trial for witchcraft like three times in early Virginia. And, you know, the, the job that I was doing was writing this essay for a collection on Virginia women that Sandy Treadway and I are co-editing. And, um, you know, I mean, the people publishing, it's like, well, you know, we'd like to have an image of your person. And it's like, well, you know, would you take Samantha from Bewitched? You know, I mean, it's, it's you know, um, you know and, and, and the answer, of course, is no. But one of the things that's really striking, I'm the editor of Volume 1. Volume 1 ends with the Civil War. And of the 18 women that we're covering, only two of them had their portraits painted. And I think we have, you know, images of, 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 of maybe like four or five, and the other ones are at the very end when photography comes into vogue. So there's a statue of Grace Sherwood, the Virginia witch in Virginia Beach, and I actually drove down there to see it, but it's like, no one knows what she looked like. You know, so like if they had erected a statue of her in, in the 17th century, she probably would have been like all evil and scary looking. And now she's like this earth mother, you know, I mean, it, 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 you know, I mean, clearly it's, it's, you know, it's what you, it's what you project. So that, so that is the very long answer of why I didn't want to write about the Civil War. <laughs>